You're now listening to episode 63 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hull and Thomas Castelli here today with Dan Hanford, serial entrepreneur, co-founder of a multifamily investment company, PassiveInvesting.com, and founder of the Multifamily Investor Nation, a community of over 9,000 multifamily investors nationwide. In this episode, we'll discuss how Dan's business background translates to the business of multifamily investing, what it takes to run a business, where we are in the current market cycle, Dan's favorite tax strategy, and more. Be sure to stick around to the end for our debrief and Q&A segments where we answer questions from you, the listener. Before we jump right into today's episode, we want to remind you about our virtual workshops. They are not a webinar, but rather our virtual workshops are a highly interactive experience that puts you in a room with our tax strategists as well as fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax and accounting questions that you've been dying to ask, while at the same time discovering what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for our virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshop or by following the link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Dan, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got to where you are today? Well, I'll, I'll kind of keep it a little short because I could go on for probably half an hour, 45 minutes about the background stuff. But my background has been primarily in business. And one of the things that led me into the multifamily real estate investing, which is what I'm doing now, is the businesses that I had created earlier on. So I built them from scratch and I have an online business that I started that continues to do seven figures of revenue every year. And it's into a, it's at a passive standpoint for me. It's been that way for about seven or eight years now. And then I have another company, which is a group of medical clinics here in South Carolina, because I'm located in Columbia, South Carolina. And those clinics are running passively right now as well. And so making a lot of money off of these different entities and writing lots of uh, large checks, not lots of checks, but just one large check or four checks a year, if you will, to the government and uh, trying to figure out a way to reduce that taxable liability from having to write these large six-figure checks to the government. Being able to reduce that um, is one of the main reasons why I went into the multifamily space. So kind of progressed from you know starting these businesses to getting to a point where I was frustrated with taxes and found a way to you know reduce that taxable liability by investing in real estate. That's why a lot of people invest in real estate is because they see the tax benefits of it over you know, some other businesses, especially when you look at things like the cost segregation and the real estate professional status and all of that. So would you be able to discuss a little bit how the skills and the things you learned in your other businesses translated well into the multifamily business? Sure. I mean, I think you know the space that I'm in when multifamily is in the larger 100, 150 units or more, minimum 10 million in acquisition. And so we're in the larger space when it comes to multifamily. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that when you're buying a single family home, you're buying an asset. But when you're buying a large multifamily asset, you're not just buying an asset, you're buying a business. You know, You have to know how to understand 
numbers and how to measure things so you can manage them properly. And you have to understand how to manage people, which is probably the number one thing you have to know how to do is manage people. And then also know how to put in systems and procedures and processes in place. And then know when to pivot when you need to pivot when there's some things that aren't going as planned or when and if the market turns, you have to know how to pivot. And so you know, my background and experience in running businesses successfully is something that I definitely take into account when it comes to these multifamily assets that we're acquiring because you know, our group is, is acquiring these large assets and you, know, you have to make sure that someone on the sponsorship side and the sponsorship team has some background and success in, in running a business. And the, one of the other things that I would say that I've, I've learned very earlier on in my, in my entrepreneurial journey, if you will, you know, with these other businesses is you know, I actually got a text message today from a good friend of mine who's one of our investors in one of our projects. And you know, he, he just texted me today and he basically said, you know, how do you run so many different businesses and still have time to balance family and church activities and things? And it's a great question, but the biggest response that I gave to him was delegation. You know, learning to be able to hire good quality people that you can trust to delegate certain tasks to. And, and in the beginning, it's hard because when you first start a business, you know, you don't have a lot of extra capital to be able to put towards maybe hiring that first person or whatever. But I would say from a you know mindset standpoint and a time standpoint, you know, really making that first move of hiring somebody to be able to delegate a lot of those tasks is what's going to free you up to be able to spend more time with your family. And for me, I remember earlier on when I started these businesses, I didn't have a lot of time for my family. And I found that I was basically being selfish because I felt like... I still feel like this today that I'm the best person to do every task in the business. And it's a flaw, and I know that. But you know, the only way to fix it and correct it is to mitigate that by realizing that for me, if I could hire somebody else to do it 80, 85% as good as I, I can do it, it's still better for me to do that than have to try to do everything myself because you can't scale that way. You can't grow. And so in order for me to grow and scale, I had to learn early on the art of delegation. So Dan, when you are delegating tasks, how are you holding people accountable to completing those tasks? Do you have metrics that you hold them accountable to or what does that look like? Well, I am a very, I don't want to say strict. I, I mean, I'm definitely very direct with people. And so and I would say I'm fairly demanding, but not in a bad way. Like, you know, people understand that, you know, when there are certain tasks that they have to get done, they got to get done. And I'm going to follow up on them and we have meetings on a regular basis. And, you know, right now, you know, my, my businesses are, are, are in, a, in a position where I have really just one person in each one of those businesses that, you know, is under me, if you will. And all the other people report to that, not all of them to that person, but there's a chain of command, if you will. Right. And so, you know, I meet with my corporate team on a week, on, on a monthly basis to make sure that my, my vision and goals of the practice and the business are running smoothly. And so we do, we do have certain KPIs and certain targets that we're looking for in the business. And there's, I don't know how many we have. We probably have at least two or three dozen that we look at on a regular basis. But there are certain key ones that we would say uh, with that probably about five or six that we're really the most concerned with, but we have a whole litany of them that we actually review on a regular basis that we can continue to monitor. But as far as specific tasks, I mean, it's really, you know, related to like, for example, you know, we, in the green room, we were talking about my multifamily investor nation summit that I put on. I've done two of them now and you're ready to do another one in January, 2020. And one of the things that I did is, is I delegated almost all of that to my assistant, Stacy, And she is the one who's pretty much 
running everything on the back end and just setting everything up and coordinating the speakers. And I don't micromanage her. I'm like, hey, here's a speaker that I'd like to speak. Here's their topic. Go schedule it. And she works all that stuff out. She does all the social media graphics and everything and works all, and manages all that piece of it. And so for me, my management style is not by abdication, but it's not by micromanaging either. And so I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle where I'm still checking in and making sure things are being done properly, but I'm not just saying, hey, you're, go do it. And then I'm not going to check in and follow up. So the biggest thing I would say is, is making sure that you know the people that you hire, you don't have to micromanage them because somebody that you have to micromanage could actually cause you to spend more time than actually just doing it yourself. And so to me, one of the mistakes I made earlier on in my career as an entrepreneur and a business owner is, is I felt like I had to hire the cheapest person because I didn't know if I could afford the better people, right? And so when you're, when you're hiring the cheapest person, you're also not going to get the best quality work. And so one of the other things that I learned, even with delegation, is that it's okay to spend a little bit more money because you're going to get a better quality person and you're not going to have to you know, babysit them as much either. So first, it sounds like Stacy rocks. So shout out to Stacy. <laughs> he does. He does. He does. I could say that she's been excellent. All right. Some good client feedback there. 10 out of 10 on the Net Promoter Score. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so if we switch gears to kind of like multifamily there, how are you holding like a property manager accountable? Uh, when they don't work for you. I mean, they're on your payroll technically, but not an employee. And then let's also talk about how do you hold like a CPA or an attorney accountable too, right? Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of metrics there. So from the latter, the, the attorney and the CPA standpoint, one of the biggest issues, and it's probably the number one issue in all service-based businesses is, and they're kind of related, but it's lack of communication and lack of consistent communication meaning i mean i don't know how many times i've reached out to an attorney before and you know asked him a question and it takes him a week or two weeks to get back to me or you know reaching out to an accountant and they just never respond to you and i i get frustrated and i don't treat my staff that way i don't treat my patients i don't treat my investors that way and so for me i want to make sure that i'm aligning myself and working with people that you know, can respond very quickly and swiftly. And even if it, uh, they don't know the answer right away, one of the things I, I try to do myself is, like, for example, somebody sent me an email over the weekend of a deal that they wanted me to look at and see about possibly doing a co-sponsorship or co-GP with them. And they sent me their whole deck and I didn't have time to sit there right then and like review the whole email and every single Excel file and all this kind of stuff. But when I received the email, I replied. And I, just, I just simply said, I received your email. I'll take a look at it and I'll give you a response first part of the week. And that way they know I received it, right? There's no like, hey, did you get my email? And at least they know I received it and when to expect a response. And so and same thing with an attorney or a CPA. I don't expect a response right away from them to know the answer if it's something more detailed, but I would still expect a response back that said, hey, you know, just to let you know I got your email. We're researching it. We'll get back to you within two to three days or whatever. And then get back to me in two or three days. And you know, a lot of people just, they lose a lot of customers and lose a lot of clients because of that lack of communication in any type of service-based industry. We win a lot of those clients. <laughs> I Nine out of 10, I don't know if it's a true stat, but it feels like it. Nine out of 10 of the folks that I talk to say that exact same thing. I, ask, I always ask, why are you looking to switch CPAs? And there's typically two reasons. One, I don't feel like my CPA knows real estate as well as he should with the scale that I'm achieving right now. Number two, I can never get an answer out of the guy or gal. It takes me two weeks to get back to me. It's inadequate and yada, yada. And so I'm always, I'll just be like, well, we guarantee a response within 24 to 48 hours. How's that? And that's like such a weak 
guarantee in every other business ever. But for whatever reason, CPAs just can't get the response out. It's crazy. You're not the only one. Yeah. What was that first part of the question? Because I know that was kind of the latter part of the question. Uh, Property managers. How do you manage property managers? Yeah. So one of the things we're doing, especially when we first acquire a property, we're in that middle of that value add component stage where we're doing renovations, interior, exterior. Every week, we have a weekly phone call with them and we have an agenda that's set. And we, we train the property managers to... And then we, we actually work with a third-party property management company. So we'll have the on-site property manager and we'll also have the regional on the call with us. And we'll go through each one of the properties and they'll set the agenda ahead of time. And so anything we want to address, we'll also send them ahead of time and you know make sure that we keep them accountable on you know making sure we have those weekly phone calls, make sure we're getting through the agendas. And we have a spreadsheet whenever we have tasks that are being assigned that we put those tasks on that spreadsheet and we follow up with them on the next call to make sure it's actually being being done. And so you know, the biggest thing is, is I think the same thing, communication, right? I mean, we're having these phone calls on a weekly basis. And you know, I've seen some other groups that you know have monthly calls or they'll have quarterly calls. And by the time you have those calls, I feel like a lot of times it's too late. You know, especially on some of these assets that you're doing a, a heavy renovation plan on, you know, you have to make sure you're having those that that constant contact with them, especially in the beginning when you first acquire a property. You know, once you've you've stabilized that property and you're you've implemented your value plan and things are humming along and there's not a lot of issues, could you push that back to every other week or once a month? Yeah, I think you can. And then obviously you can have some of those those when you have some major issues on a property, you've got to get on earlier or whatever. Um, but I would even say even outside of our calls, we're emailing back and forth throughout the week and you know various things like that. So it's definitely a, a consistent flow of communication going back and forth with those property management companies. And their biggest thing is, is if they don't perform, then we're month to month with all of them. So we can go to the next person the next month. It sounds like it's that easy, but obviously when you have lenders involved, you have to get lender approval and things like that. But um, that's definitely one of the ways that we've used, you know, making sure that our, our property managers are actually performing the asset the way we want to perform them as well. And I would also say that we also engage the property management company earlier on in the process before we even acquire a property so that they're on board with our plan. And that way, we're not just going to them after the fact and saying, hey, this is the plan we want you to execute. We're actually coming up with the plan alongside them so that they agree with the plan before we acquire the property. Definitely have to agree with a lot of that stuff because when I did the syndication that I was doing when we first started, you know, we're on the phone with the property manager very often. And then as time goes on and as things start to smooth out, you know, it starts to wean off and it starts to become a lot more on the passive side of things. But with that said, with everything you just said before, what's your advice for someone who's just getting into the real estate investment space? Someone who's deciding, you know, should I just be a passive investor with someone maybe like yourself or what should I do or should I go active? Do I have what it takes to go active? Am I ready to do the time commitment? What would you say to someone like that? Sure. I mean, I, I think I would tell them to do what I did. So, you know, you know, obviously our group, you know, I don't know if you haven't mentioned it yet, but our name of our group is passiveinvesting.com. And it's a great group name, obviously, with the you know, passive investing and then of course having the dot com name with it. It's a great branding strategy. So for me, what we did in the I did in the very beginning is I invested passively. Because number one, I wanted to understand the real estate that I was getting involved with and I wanted to learn a lot about it first. And then I also wanted to see how the communication was with that partner that I was actually you know, putting some LP money with and, and investing passively to see how I was being treated so I can set my own standards of how I want to be communicated with as well. 
And, you know, I even, you know, I've been traveling around the country and, and speaking at a couple of different events. And I've been speaking on the mindset of a high net worth investor. And it goes back to communication. I mean, you have to be communicating with your investors about anything and everything. And, you know, we have a property right now that we've already raised all of the money on. And we've been sitting on the money for about 45 days because of some lender delays. And so the, we've had to extend two times to be able to get this thing to the, to the closing table, which will be next week. We'll be closing it. But we communicated that along the way with the investors and said, hey, just, just want to give you an update. Hey, this is what the status is. And this is what's happening. And that way, they don't feel like there's just like nobody communicating. We get bombarded with a bunch of emails and phone calls. And hey, you have my money. And what's the process? And what's happening? We don't get that because they already know up front where we are with the process. And we always try to under-promise and over deliver as well. You know, like this particular, you know, latest extension on this particular asset was supposed to be the first week of September. Well, we're actually been pushing the lender and pushing the lender trying to get it closed sooner. We were originally thinking it was going to be the last week of this month, the last week of August, but we would rather go to the investors and say, "Hey, it's going to be the first week of September" than having to go to them and say, "Hey, we got to extend again," right? So, I would rather go to them with some good news, "Hey, we closed early." Then having to go to them if it didn't happen that way and say, hey, we got to extend another week. So just thinking about those types of things, I think is very important when it comes to this piece of it. Yeah. And just completely almost shifting gears a little bit. So with multifamily investing, a lot of people were thinking we're at the top of the market or at least nearing the top of the market. We're seeing it with compressed cap rates. Uh, People are willing to overpay for assets and it's just getting harder and harder to find a good deal. Where do you think we are in the market? And what would your advice be for where you believe we are? Sure. You know, I get this question asked to me, you know, usually probably at least a couple of times a day because I'm on investor calls and things like that throughout the day. And one of the things that I always point to is the fact that, yes, I do feel like we are at the top of the market. I also feel like that I don't feel this way, but when you do the research on this impending correction or, you know, market shift or whatever you want to call it, it's been projected that it's going to be coming since you know 2015. That's when they first started talking about it is in 2015. And so there's been a lot of people that have sat on the sidelines since 2015 and done absolutely nothing because they were afraid of some sort of impending correction. And the problem with that is, is that the last three to four years have been the, the most phenomenal market to be in in U.S. history. I mean, it's been phenomenal. And so to continue to sit on the sidelines, I think was definitely a mistake for those people. But also, you know, looking at, you know, the next three to five years, is there going to be some sort of a shift or downturn or correction? I don't know. And what I tell our investors is that we don't invest on speculation. We invest and do our projections based on what the current market is doing for us right now. And so with the understanding, which I think most investors understand this, if they're, you know, sophisticated in any format, is that if I go out with a deal that says, hey, we're going to get a 15% you know, return on it, and I go out there and market shifts, market corrects, and I get them a 7% or an 8% preferred, not preferred, but an 8% return, 7 or 8% return, but they were still able to preserve their capital in a downturn and still take advantage of the tax side of things as well, was that a good, was that a good investment? And every single one of my investors are like, oh yeah, absolutely. If I can, in a downturn, preserve capital, still make a return, and also increase my returns based on the depreciation of those assets, yeah, that's a home run investment, right? And, uh, and so I think people just have to understand that you know, even though you might look at a deal and see a projection today that says you might get a you know, 15, 16, 17% return, uh, the market shifts, 
you have to expect lower returns. I mean, that's just kind of how it is, but it's not that operator's fault or anything like that. It's just that's the market. But what you get with that is, is you get returns still, hopefully, right? And then you also get that capital preservation and the tax benefits. Awesome. You mentioned uh, tax savings and strategies a couple of times. What are some things that you're doing on the multifamily side in terms of implementing tax strategies? Sure. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of different things. So one of the number one things we do on every single one of our assets is a cost segregation study. Uh, and those cost segregation studies allow us to be able to piecemeal the property and accelerate the depreciation on the, on the asset from a normal 27 and a half year depreciation schedule to the to a five to 15 year schedule, depending on the item within the asset. So we front load a lot of that depreciation. And then also from a renovation standpoint, being able to 100% expense a lot of those renovation and expenses that first year has also been very beneficial as well. And so for those of our investors who are in some of our projects that are you know passive investors, they might be working another corporate job or running their own business, and uh, aren't classified as a real estate professional, you know, they're going to be able to offset some other types of incomes and things like that, that you guys could probably specifically talk a little bit more on that piece of it than me. Uh, I am a real estate professional, but I'm not a CPA or attorney or advisor or anything like that. But then, you know, for those of our investors that are, you know, maybe a real estate agent or classified in similar format of, you know, of a real estate professional can offset pretty much all of their income, even, even their spouses if they're filing jointly. And, uh, and so it's a, a tool to be able to use, to be able to take advantage of those taxes. Yeah, that's great. Now, the cost segs, they're definitely beneficial for a lot of passive investors. You invest the funds, you get a really big, especially after the 2018 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, a really big bonus depreciation that generally creates a large loss that passes through back to you. But how do you talk to investors when they're coming to you and asking about the tax benefits of investing with you? Do you have a certain spiel that you give them? Or just talk to me about that. If somebody comes up to you and they say, Dan, I'm going to invest $500,000 with you. Can you talk to me about the tax benefits of this investment? What do you say? Well, the first thing I'll ask them is, is and I'll usually already know this when I've talked to them earlier on, is, is whether or not they would be qualified as a real estate professional. And so, you know, that's the first thing I'll ask them is, is because that's going to help me determine, you know, where are they really going to be able to take advantage of this? Because, you know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I've gone down this rabbit trail, you know, too many times. And I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, but as a real estate professional, they can offset all of their income, even ordinary income, plus their spouses if they're filing jointly. And then if they are not classified as a real estate professional, then they can only offset other passive losses. And it can roll over to the next year, but you can still only offset passive losses for whatever you're rolling over. Yeah, passive losses. Uh, so passive losses can offset the passive income of other real estate investments that also includes liquidations of rentals or other syndications. So one of the strategies that we'll sometimes employ is we'll have a client where they're invested in one syndicate that might be liquidating unexpectedly, typically for a good reason. We're selling at a much higher value. And what we'll do is say, cool, let's take that money and let's roll it into a new syndication that is specifically running cost seg, bonus depreciation, get the big passive loss, offset the gain. Um, that typically works out pretty well. You can also run DSTs, Deferred Sales Trust. Uh, we just talked about that, I believe, on the episode that released last week, Tom, right? Yep. 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 Cool. So listen to last week's episode to learn about Deferred Sales Trust, but a very powerful planning tool there as well. But yet on the real estate professional piece, just everybody remember, you have to materially participate as well in the rental activity. So if you are a real estate agent, 
and you qualify as a real estate professional on the real estate agent side of the business, you're not going to be able to just take the passive losses from these syndications. You would have to demonstrate that you materially participate in that rental activity. So you'll need to build out your own rental portfolio first to show that you materially participate in a rental portfolio. And then you can aggregate in the LP investments. You can definitely do that. That's one little caveat there that uh, that not a lot of CPAs even know uh, in this space. They think that real estate professionals the the only thing, but that's the first step. Second is material participation. Um, well, and I will say this too, Brandon, that I, I have had a lot of investors that have asked their CPAs about the real estate professional status. And they tell them, no, that's not true. You can't do that. And I'm like, uh, you need to get a different CPA. So, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people who are listening here are going to probably go back to their CPAs and ask them, hey, you know, if I can qualify as a real estate professional, can I offset all of our income? And they're going to probably go look at you and go, no, you know, you, they don't know what you're talking about. But it's all listed on the IRS website. I tell them, say, just tell their, their CPA to Google it. And it's all on the IRS.gov website. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And there's typically nothing wrong with the CPAs. It's just that they don't have the deep level of expertise in the real estate. They don't have all the reps. Like I was explaining this to somebody the other day. They're like, why are you guys more qualified than my CPA? And I was like, well, we have, we get thousands of reps every single day in the real estate space because it's literally all we do. So where one CPA who's more of a generalist works with a bunch of different businesses and, and a bunch of different people, and then real estate's a small portion of their practice, or even like 30, 40% of their practice, they may not realize the intricacies. They might look at the real estate professional status and go, that's a high risk strategy, even though it's totally not. The question is, can you substantiate it? If you can substantiate it, then it's perfectly safe. It's perfectly fine. But you'll have CPAs out there that'll look at that and say, oh, well, if you can generate a $200,000 loss, that is super risky and you're going to get audited. And we look at it and we say, you're going to generate a $200,000 loss and we're going to prepare you for examination. We just operate under the mindset that you will get audited. And uh, if you're not, you're probably not being aggressive enough. So let's just go into it knowing that we need to substantiate it and prepare for that situation should it ever come about. Awesome. So find a different CPA. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Dan, as someone who runs a virtual summit, what is your favorite piece of technology or software that you're currently using in your business? Man, uh, there are so many. I would probably say it's the Calendly website or the, the Calendly software or whatever. Because you know, before I would go back and forth with people and say, hey, what days do you have available? And they'd say, oh, I have these available in these times and that times. And you know, People that want to reach out to me, I mean, that's I use that for just about everybody, you know, except for my parents. I tried that once and it didn't go over so well. <laughs> um, but uh, I actually have tried it with a couple of my staff and it doesn't go over well with them either. So you have to treat them a little bit differently. But for the most part, it makes life much easier. You know, when I'm scheduling either a podcast episode that I'm going to be running or, you know, if, if I'm going to be scheduling, uh, I do a lot of Facebook promos for our summits that, are, that, that we have. And I have all the speakers schedule their, their little, you know, 10 minute spot on that on the Calendly link. I have investors do the same thing. So they'll, my assistant will first try to call the investor and schedule them live over the phone to be able to, you know, like a more personal contact with us. And then if she can't get a hold of them, she basically on the voicemail says, Well, I'm going to go ahead and send you an email with a link to Dan's calendar. So you can go ahead and pick out a time that works best for you. And so that way it's not a cold, just send out an email and that's it. It's a little bit more, more of a warmer touch to them. But I have a lot of people, even with our multifamily investor nation group, that you know reach out and they have a couple of questions about various things. I try to be a resource as best I can. And I have a calendar link that I'll, I'll send out for, for people who want to jump on a call with me. And, and I do time block as well. So I have usually my Tuesdays are slammed full 
of phone calls and podcasts and things like that. And then uh, Thursdays, I leave open for just my investor calls and maybe one or two podcasts here and there. Usually when I'm, when I'm being interviewed on another podcast or something like that, and then uh, my other days are, are usually you know, fairly open so I can actually time block and actually get things done. Because I used to open it up Monday through Friday and they can schedule whenever and then I wouldn't have time to do anything else. And so I time block it and you know, it might, I might be you know, a week or two or three weeks out sometimes from being scheduled. Um, I think in September, it's going to be kind of crazy because I'm traveling all over the place. And uh, I'm only going to be in town for like, you know, maybe 10 of the entire days in September because of uh, various traveling and things like that. Some of it's with family. I'm actually going to go to London for a week. I have a business conference out there that I'm going to be attending. And I decided to go and bring my wife and my two older children. So I have four children, eight-year-old, seven-year-old, two-year-old, and a one-year-old. So when I I can bring them along with me, I, I try to do that as well. Nice. So Dan, it seems like you have like a lot of business knowledge and it'd be you know great to learn some insights from you. What was the name of your podcast again? Not necessarily the real estate one, but the other one. Uh, sure. Yeah. It's called Tough Decisions for Entrepreneurs. Nice. Going to have to check that one out, add it to the list of, uh, list of podcasts. And you also have another one, right? It's uh, Passive Real Estate Investing as well, right? Uh, no, this one's just called uh, just the name of our group, Multifamily Investor Nation. It's just Multifamily Investor Nation is the name of the podcast. So it's uh, we started it in January, and it's a very specific podcast where we only interview operators who are closing deals in the last twelve months. We go really deep and specific on how they acquired a property or how they were actually able to implement their value plan and exit a deal as well. Nice, nice. So, what would be the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more about you or contact you? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the best way to do that is is uh, you know to go to passiveinvesting.com. There's an investor form there if you're interested in becoming one of our passive investors. And you know, for those of you who uh, just have some other specific questions, you can certainly shoot me an email. It's just Dan at passiveinvesting.com. And uh, glad to be able to help out and be a resource with you for you as much as I can. And you know, for those of you who are interested in more on the educational side, on the multifamily side of things. You can go to our website, just multifamilyinvestornation.com. And there's links there to kind of join us in various formats as well. Nice, nice. Dan, we want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. And we're looking forward to releasing this next week. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate all you guys do. And uh, looking forward to continue to follow you as well. Cool. So we just wrapped up the interview with Dan Hanford, a uh, super smart guy, seems super savvy on the business side. There's a lot I think he he would be able to provide, you know, in terms of... Um, you know, education, he has his podcast, he had mentioned it would be tough decisions for entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. I love the whole bit on holding people accountable. You know, we've been going through a lot of that at our firm too, changing things around and trying to figure out how do we hold our own staff accountable and what do we hold them accountable to. So it's just kind of cool, like like hearing him talk about delegating and, and just kind of tracking different KPIs on a weekly basis or a monthly basis in some cases, getting updates. So you got to do that. You, you have to be able to hold people to results. And that's the one thing that I picked up from that, right? He's not holding people accountable to inputs. He's holding people accountable to results. And that's the only way that you're going to be able to do it if you're going to be running as many businesses as he seems to be running. Um, that was one of, one of the kind of key things that I picked up on with the, the delegation stuff there. And then, of course, how do you hold your CPA and attorney accountable? I always like that question because <laughs> I always like to just kind of get the, into the client's mind, right? How do you ensure that your CPA is caring about you? Are you just a number? Are you just another one of their projects in their spreadsheets or their CRM systems? And um, you know, Dan hit the nail on the head. It's making sure that you're working with somebody that can communicate with you consistently and proactively. You don't want to send them an email and have to wait two or three weeks to get a single reply back, especially if that email was rather urgent, right? And it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing how many people I talk to 
through the sales calls that I will ask them, why are you switching CPAs? I ask every single person, why are you switching CPAs? And almost every single one of them says, my CPA does not communicate with me proactively. It takes, it takes a long time to get a response back. And uh, it's just crazy to me that there are service providers out there that just, I don't know if they don't recognize it or whatever, but it's just crazy to me that, that they just can't jump on something that simple and fix it. You know, there's so many tools and systems and things out there. You could hire, you can hire an administrative assistant for a relatively cheap rate to just reply to the emails and say, we got the email, we're triaging it. You'll hear a response back here in a couple of days. Just that simple act can make a world of a difference, but instead they just let their clients leave. Yeah, you know what it is though. They always say that CPAs, you know, specifically and also attorneys, usually don't have the best. Well, maybe attorneys do, but don't necessarily have the best people skills. Uh, don't necessarily have the best sales skills, and that type of stuff is what limits a lot of CPAs. And I know that to be very true because I've interviewed a lot of CPAs in the past, and I interviewed a lot of accountants, and often that's the one thing that is missing. So I think that if you know you want to stand out in that type of environment, if you can master those skills, those communication skills, those coaching skills, those sales skills, those marketing skills, you're going to be, you know, put yourself in a very good position, um, standing out from the rest of the people in that industry or in this industry that don't have those skills. I think that's something we do pretty well. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the guarantees that we offer people. And, and it is a lame guarantee in my opinion, but it's an effective guarantee. Hey, you reach out to us, we will reply within 24 to 48 hours. It might not be the reply that you asked for, but it's going to be something that says, Hey, we recognize that you sent us an email and uh, we're on it. It might not be the actual answer, but you know you can expect it within this sort of time frame. And just setting those general expectations is, is really, really big. You know, I mean, another one of the complaints that we often hear is my CPA filed an extension and didn't tell me until April fifteenth. Well, we used to do that too while we were trying to figure out how to scale a business, <laughs> but now we don't. We have a very structured process, and it's you, you client, have to upload by X date. If you can do that, we're going to file by Y date. If you upload on X date plus one, so if we give you the February 28th deadline and you upload on March 1st, we're filing an extension. No questions asked. We're not, you know, we gave you the expectations. You got to meet them if you want to hold us to expectations as well. And it works so well. It just takes the pressure off of tax season. Clients are happier. And we've just had a great, a great experience doing that. But yeah, I mean, Tom, you're totally right. The most effective employee, the most technical employee, does not necessarily make the best leader. And you see a lot of these CPAs that are really good at the technical piece and they go out and they strike it on their own, but they really stink at running a business. They should really be the man behind the scenes, handling operations, handling project management, not the person that is doing all the strategy you know, and, and scaling. 100% agree with that there. Not, you, sometimes you have to know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and know who can complement you. And Another thing I think too is, you know, if you're going to do something along those lines and, and go and be entrepreneurial, sometimes you do have to look towards mentors, look for coaches. And I've, I've started to learn, I shunned that in my past sometimes, but I'm starting to realize that sometimes that's what you need um, if you're going to be out there playing those type of games. And even if you're going to be investing in uh, multifamily, that's something you should consider as well. Absolutely. I spend an insane amount on coaches every single year. And it's 100% worthwhile. You definitely have to go through some iterations to find the right ones. But uh, once you do, it, it's phenomenal. So, so moving on. So Dan talked a little bit about some of the tax strategies that they use. Of course, we heard cost segregation studies. That was not a surprise at all. So if you are investing in syndicates, you should always ask them, 
how is this going to affect me from a tax perspective? And uh, hopefully they do mention something along the lines of cost segregation studies, bonus depreciation, that type of thing. Uh, make sure to also ask about how they're going to handle the business interest limitations. That's new as of 2018, and they need to have a plan in place. It's relatively easy to get around, but if they don't know about it or if their CPA doesn't know about it, that should be a red flag for you as an investor. Uh, so these are all just questions, not to necessarily trick somebody, but just to ask, have you really thought through every single aspect of running this or are you too green or do you just not care about certain parts of the business there? But so we talked about cost segregation studies, also talked about uh, real estate professional status and you know, if people invest in syndicates and they're real estate professionals then they can use that 100% bonus appreciation and uh, use that big passive loss. And we just, again, uh, we, we, we tackled it on the podcast, but we wanted to reiterate that real estate professional status is only step one. And we've talked about it on the podcast. I've actually had some folks that I've been talking to recently that are like, you don't have to tell me about material participation because I listen to your podcast, <laughs> which is good. And we're going to keep preaching it till everybody knows there are two steps to using all of your passive losses. You first have to qualify as a real estate professional. That's step one. You then have to demonstrate that you materially participated in a real estate trade or business and specifically the rental piece of it. Those syndications, those LP investments you're making, you're never going to materially participate in those because you're not going to spend any sort of management hours. You don't have any sort of voting rights. There's no way that you can hit any sort of material participation hours in those syndicates. So if you are a real estate broker, agent, property manager, if you're a real estate developer, flipper, wholesaler, you don't have any rental properties and you go and start investing in these syndicates, you will not be able to use those losses. I just want to make that very, very clear. You will not be able to use those losses. You have to build a real estate portfolio. You have to be a landlord, essentially, and you have to materially participate in that landlording activity. You can qualify as a real estate professional on the non-landlording activity. So I can be a real estate agent and qualify as a real estate professional, but I also then have to show that I materially participated in the landlording activity and I can then group in my limited partnership interest in all these syndications. Yeah, and if you think about it, though, it really makes sense if you know what the government's aiming for. The government wants people to create jobs, right? And if you're just a passive investor, you're not doing that. But if you're a landlord, you are doing that. You're doing it through property. Oh, create jobs and provide housing. I'm sorry, it's like the two biggest things the government usually wants you to do. And when you're a landlord, you have the opportunity to do both. But when you're doing it passively, you're only providing the money. You're not taking the risk of going and doing all that stuff and employing people and, and having to take on the general partnership risk and the unlimited liability that comes with being a landlord. But that said, this is a perfect time to transition into the third segment of the podcast. And that is the Q&A segment where you, the listener, you can go ahead and drop us a question at therealestatecpa.com backslash podcasts. That's podcast with an S. And we'd love to go ahead and answer your question. So one we have here from today and Amanda, she says, should a realtor buy a new car? And if so, cash or payments? I think she might mean uh, financing. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Um, I mean, cash versus financing is kind of a personal decision. If you can buy a new car and justify the business use of the new car, you have the potential to utilize Section 179, which allows you, and, and bonus depreciation, which could allow you to deduct the entire cost of the vehicle, depending on what type of vehicle it is. So it's definitely something that allows you to essentially lower your investment. Like if you can get the tax savings out of buying a new vehicle, it essentially lowers your investment in that vehicle overall. 100%. All right, Tom. And that leads us to our next question. Thank you very much for submitting this, Bob. Uh, Bob asks, 
if you're a landlord, how can you benefit from that 20% pass-through deduction, that 199A deduction? All right. Well, I think the first thing to understand is that you have to first have income, right? So as a landlord, many times, especially if you listen to uh, this podcast or if you're a client of ours, you might not have income. You might have uh, rental losses. And if that is the case, then you would not get this deduction. In order to do it, you need to have qualified business income. So that's step one, right? You have to have the income. Step two is you have to uh, meet a certain safe harbor requirements. Well, I'll take that back. You don't necessarily have to meet these requirements, but this is the safe harbor that will pretty much guarantee that you do get this deduction. And there are a handful of different things, and we'll go ahead and start with the beginning. Um, the first requirement is the property is either held individually, so in your personal name, or through a disregarded or passed through entity, such as a single member LLC, a trust, an S corporation, although you shouldn't hold rental properties in S corporations or a partnership. The second is that commercial and residential real estate may not be part of the same enterprise. So if you invest in, say, self-storage and residential, keep those in two separate businesses. They need to be separate. Uh, The next one is separate books and records must be maintained to reflect the income and expenses of each rental real estate activity or enterprise. So again, if you have a commercial real estate enterprise, you have a residential real estate enterprise, you must keep separate books and records for each of those. Now you can have multiple residential properties or multiple commercial properties as part of the same residence. You must also spend, and not necessarily, you know, we'll get to that in just a second, spend at least 250 hours of rental services uh, are performed on each enterprise. So you don't necessarily have to do it. You could have an agent, a property manager, a uh, contractor, someone along those lines, something like that, do it. But someone must be uh, spending at least 250 hours on rental services. Um, and those usually include advertising for rent, negotiating, executing leases, verifying tenant applications, uh, collection of rent, or the daily operation or maintenance of that property. Things like financing will not count. The last part of this is you must maintain records of the time spent towards this 250 hours. And these records must include A, hours of all services performed, B, a description of all services performed, C, the dates on which such services were performed, and D, who performs those services. And those are things you need in order to take the QBI deduction as a landlord. Yeah. And just to kind of like elaborate, what we're really trying to figure out here is do your rental activities qualify as a section 162 trader business? Uh, and that's never really been litigated in the past because it didn't really matter. You could always deduct the business expenses associated with the real estate. But now all of a sudden it matters because we've got this QBI deduction that we potentially want to qualify for. So the IRS came up with a safe harbor. Uh, it's revenue proce- It's inside revenue procedure 2019-7 and Tom just described all of that. If you can qualify for that safe harbor, then your rental activities will be rising to that level of a Section 162 trader business. You'll qualify for the 20% pass-through deduction. It is important to note that triple net leases do not qualify for that safe harbor. So if you're running commercial properties that are cash flowing really well and and you're running them on triple net leases, they don't qualify for the safe harbor. But like Tom said, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't qualify for the 20% pass-through deduction. They can, if you can show or substantiate that you're commercial activities rise to the level of a section 162 trader business, but that's going to be pretty difficult to do in the, in the triple net lease space. So it's also not necessarily a bad thing if your rentals can't qualify as a section 162 trader business and therefore can't qualify for the section 199A deduction, that 20% pass through deduction. And the reason it's not a bad thing is because rentals generally don't uh, produce passive taxable income. You can have positive cash flow, but show negative taxable income. So I hope that that explanation helps. 
Yeah. And, and just the you know, last thing to say on that is if you're doing the right things and you're using the right tax strategies, most of the time, this, unless you have like, you know, assets that you've been holding for many, many decades and you have no depreciation expense on it, then you really shouldn't have to worry about the QBI deduction anyway. You should be using other strategies to reduce uh, the taxable income below zero for your rental properties. Remember, you can submit your questions by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcasts and submitting them in the box found right there on that one page. Before we go, we wanted to remind you to check out the ultimate guide to tax planning for landlords and buy and hold the real estate investors, which of course is a comprehensive free guide to tax planning for landlords. You can find it by following the link in the show notes below or by going to Google and typing in the ultimate guide to tax planning for landlords and buy and hold real estate investors. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.